Good morning to you. It's good to be here today and to lift up our voices in song and in praise to our God who is worthy of all praise. And today we'll be looking at Psalm 34. If you want to find your place there, we'll be considering the psalm, which is a psalm of praise, a psalm of praise which results from deliverance. And Psalm 34 is one of those unique psalms in which we have something of the background, something of the occasion of the psalm that prompted the psalmist to write. Many of the psalms, we don't have this, and I think that's by certainly God's design and the Holy Spirit's design, because these things minister to us in a myriad of circumstances. In other words, the psalms often meet us in any condition that we're experiencing, any difficulty, any uh, state of exaltation and rejoicing. The psalms meet us. There's a psalm to meet every condition, as it were. But of course, this particular psalm and about 14 in total, we know that are linked to specific events from the life of David. And uh, if you were paying attention, the uh, in First Samuel, the latter part of that is, is what prompted this. In fact, um, if you look at the superscription, even before verse 1, which is in the Hebrew, it is verse 1, a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. So that's the occasion. We actually have the background of what prompted him to write, and I think that's exciting. You know, it's a terrible sign when a newborn baby cannot be heard in the house. Little Elijah, let's say, when he was born in the Robinson household, you know, if there was never a cry coming forth from that child, it's a sign that what? Something's wrong. There's something that's not right with that baby. So too, for the child of God, once he has been converted, once he's been transformed to not lift up his voice in praise to God, even audibly, Psalm 40 and verse 3, He has put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear. Arthur Pink says, Praising and adoring God is the noblest part of the saints' work on earth, as it will be that employment in heaven. And so if you are one that is not given to giving praise and adoration to God in this life, what makes you think you're going to be comfortable in heaven? which will be consumed with giving God praise and adoration and glory. Well, you say, well, sometimes I lack the fuel to praise God. I'm going through such difficulties. I'm in pain. I've been diagnosed with this. I've got that. I've got a a terrible marriage. Maybe you're unequally yoked. There are any number of things that you could say, well, it's hard to find reasons to praise God. Well, I would submit to you really two things. General revelation and special revelation. General revelation, just think. I mean, you consider the stars of the sky, of which we're told that he has every one of them numbered, right? And of course, each, about every five years, the scientists say, now we've, now we think there's a million galaxies. Now we think there's a hundred million galaxies. Now it's, then it was a billion galaxies. And now it's hundreds of billions of galaxies. And yet each galaxy contains a hundred billion stars. So to do the math in that, it would be something like 10 octillion. That's a 10 with 20 zeros after it. And, and, and I think even that, as Einstein said back when, I don't know what the number was when Einstein lived, but he said, whatever, whatever scientists say, it's probably a million times that. <laughs> and he's been right, hasn't he? 
is they keep expanding it. But not only that, when you consider that, that we who are fallen in Adam and are plagued with sin, we have this, as it were, leprosy all over our body, and it's the sin condition that we're born with, that we're plagued with. And, and then when God comes in power by His Holy Spirit and takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh and breathes new life and regeneration, that is cause for praising God, is it not? Have you been changed? Have you been transformed? Oh, how we ought to fall on our knees. How we ought to fall down and give Him praise continually and continually. The psalmist says in Psalm 35, And my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all the day long. Not one hour, not 15 minutes in your morning private devotion time, but all the day long to find cause to praise God. And I think you're going to see that that jumps off the page of Psalm 34. And I've entitled the message, From Brokenhearted to Confident Praise. So let's read the psalm in its entirety. If you'll find your place, Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were never ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel, the Lord, encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions, they do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days, that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones, and not a one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you for the Psalter in particular as we will take a few weeks just considering some choice psalms. And Lord, we thank you for Psalm 34. We thank you for the heart of the psalmist. We thank you for the deliverance that you granted which led to such profound praise. Instruct us from your word. Magnify Christ who is the living word in our hearts even this very day. In whose name we pray, amen. 
Well, as I already mentioned, the superscription gives us the background of this. We read 1 Samuel 21. Uh, you might want to just reread that later uh, to get the broader context. 1 Samuel 18 to 22 really is, is the whole section there. And, and, and David's deliverance, the, the, he doesn't mention the specific events um, in this psalm. But he's emphasizing that God heard him in the day of his trial. David, I think, probably did not write the psalm immediately. He goes to the, the cave of Adullam in chapter 22. It's not as though he got, went to the cave and pulled out his quill and, and whatever and started pinning this psalm. This is, this is something that was reflected on and thought about and prayed about and penned with careful accuracy. It is one of the psalms that is an acrostic. So basically, each verse begins with the Hebrew letter in successive order, all 22 except for one. So it's in, basically is, is an acrostic of 21 of the 22 Hebrew letters. And so it is poetry, as it were, at its finest. This was a re- thoughtful reflection on the events of how God has shown himself strong to him. This psalm also is quoted by New Testament authors, and it, I love it when the, Old Test, when the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, it helps to shed light on the purpose of those Old Testament texts. That's why when you have a book such as Hebrews or Matthew, it's just so profound, it speaks so clearly, it, 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 just, it pulls out the spotlight and shines it on the Old Testament. And we have two New Testament authors that quote different parts of this psalm. One, our brother read in 1 Peter chapter 3, and I think it's very interesting to consider that, that verses 1 to 7, which is very common applied to marriage, especially to women, verse 7, towards the men, and then it flows through, and then to all, broadening the context of marriage, how were to be kind and gentle and not speaking deceit. And then he quotes verses 12, 14, 15, 16, I believe, from this psalm. But also John's gospel quotes this. Maybe you weren't hearing. In verse 20 of this psalm, he keeps all of his bones and not a one of them is broken. And John writes in John 19 and 36, these things happen that the scripture would be fulfilled that not one of his bones were broken. And so John applies that this scripture is messianic and applies to Jesus. The fact that he's on the cross and he had already died by sundown and so they did not have to break the legs as they commonly would the victims who were crucified so that they would quickly lose or not be able to breathe and die. Indeed, we who live in the Disneyland of America, I think Piper first coined that or whatever, we have such luxury. We have such warmth. We've got new beds. We've got comfortable beds and pillows and plenty of food and food we're throwing away. And we've, we've got all of this stuff. And yet even us, we can declare many are the afflictions and trials of the righteous. That this life is often filled with disappointment and grief. And I think for the child of God, it causes us to long for that place where there will be no more tears, no more weeping. When, when all the wrongs will be righted, as it were, in glory, it causes us to long for that all the more. But in the midst of these afflictions, in the midst of these right, the, the um, difficulties and trials, we know that God draws near to the brokenhearted. He, he, he hears, and he, his eyes are open to the righteous, and, 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 and he hears their cry and delivers them. He's near those who are crushed in spirit. 
Isn't that how Jesus begins the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, we're going to look at this under three general points. There are three C's, if that helps you in some way. Uh, We're going to consider the call to rejoice and praise God, or the challenge, if you want. I couldn't decide on which C, because sometimes it's a challenge to praise God in difficulties, right? So we'll just go with challenge. The challenge to rejoice and praise God, the commitment to rejoice and praise God, and then the comfort and rejoicing and praising God. So first of all, verses 1 to 7, we have a solemn call to worship. In fact, I often use verses 1 to 3, as do the others that lead worship, as a call to worship. David is calling us to worship. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. And then the call to the congregation, as it were, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I will bless the Lord at all times. That's quite a, that's quite a challenge. Because, you know, it's an in season and out of season. And for those of us who preach the word, when, when, they're, when, they're, when they're applauding and when they're throwing stones, you don't change the message, right? The message stays the same. We just looked at 2 Timothy last year. But, uh, but, but in, the, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of trials, in the midst of times of fear, that we are to praise him in every condition, in every situation, in every circumstance, before and in and after the trials, be it the bright days of joy or the discouragement and dark nights of fear. Verse 2, how do you boast in Jehovah? My soul will make its boast in the Lord. What do you boast in? To boast in the very character of God. Fathers, the Father's compassion upon His children, the, the Son's bloodletting on behalf of the children, and the Spirit's dwelling on the inside. All of His attributes, His covenant to us, the promises and all the works that He has done are incomparable and matchless to anything in this world. Consider all that He has done for you. C.S. Lewis has a little book called Reflections on the Psalms. I'm not a big C.S. Lewis fan, I'll just say that up front, though I have many first editions, um, and I've read some of his works. But this particular quote from his book on the Psalms is excellent, and it's in the chapter called A Word About Praising. And I want you to listen carefully. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite games, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical parsonages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I've noticed that how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capricious minds praised most, while the cranks and misfits and malcontents praised least. The good critics find something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrow the list of books that may be allowed to be read. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join in them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Do you think that that was magnificent? And the psalmist is telling everyone to praise God and and, and telling them to praise God that all men ought to do this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses 
but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. The worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. Isn't that true? We can admire something. We can go to the Grand Canyon as we did some weeks ago and see God's wonderful creation. But if you're not there, say, look at this part over there. Look at how the colors are changing. Look at how the clouds are doing. Isn't that wonderful what God has made here for us? My little daughter, isn't she so cute? My new baby. We have a new baby in the back there. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, it's so gorgeous, so beautiful, right? It, it, it's, it's, when others join in, it's the consummation. Well, verse 3, he calls us, let us exalt his name. Church worship is a natural consequence of the gathering of the saints who have been delivered. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's do it together. Let us exalt his name together. Let's raise him up, as it were. Not that he needs raising up by feeble man, but in our hearts and in our minds, as it were, and by our praise. William Bradford, one of the martyrs under Queen Mary in the 1500s, was at the cruel mercy of that lady, and he is quoted as saying, If the queen be pleased to release me, I will thank her. If she will imprison me, I will thank her. If she will burn me, I will thank her. So says a believing soul, let God do with me what he will. I will be thankful. It's a good disposition to have. Is that your disposition today? Lord, whatever you bring into my life, I will praise you because you're good no matter what. Even if from my carnal, finite standpoint, I'm discerning, Lord, I think you should move this and you should do that and you should heal this and you know we've got our own little agenda. But no, he's the sovereign one. He's the one that we are to praise. John Calvin says, let us therefore learn from many instances in which God may have given helps to any of his people to abound in hope when each recites the personal benefits which he has received. Let all be animated, united in a public manner to give praise to God. We give thanks publicly to God, not only that men may be witnesses of our gratitude, but also that they may follow our example. Well, verses 4 to 7, God hears and answers the prayers of his children. So often a theme in the Psalms, so comforting for us. Psalm 18.6, in my distress I called on the Lord, and I cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help came before him into his ears. What vivid, I mean, let me just read this again. And I cried to my God for help, and he heard my voice out of the temple, and my cry for help came before him and came into his ears. Isn't that just vivid? Now, don't go picturing God's ear. I wonder how big it is. Is it like an elephant's? Is it, you know, what? No, no, that's not the point. It's that he's near and that he hears, and that's glorious for the child of God. If we were to study and had time to go back into 1 Samuel there to discover all that was going on in the, the, 
the life of David. You would see that he, he, he's separated from Jonathan. You remember the arrows? If I, if I shoot him over your head, that means my dad, Saul, is after you. You need to run for your life. So he's on the run. Here he goes to uh, Gath, ultimately, and gets Goliath's sword and all of that, and then he has to feign madness. He's all alone, but he's alone. No bodyguards, no armor, no weapons. And so when you see in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. The word fear could be translated terror. And you could picture him in that scene with Abimelech. And and there he is. And do you have any weapons? Yes, there's only this sword. and, And he has no food. He has no bodyguard. His armies are not with him. And so he was filled with fear and terror. And we too are filled with many fears and terrors. Spurgeon says in his uh, Treasury of David, and delivered me from all my fears. God makes perfect work of it. He clears away both our fears and their causes, all of them without exception. Glory be to his name. Prayer sweeps the field, slays all the enemies, and even buries their bones. So when he came to from Echesh and hid in the cave of Adullam, he was utterly alone. And so he says in verse 6, this poor man, this poor man, I'm alone, I'm weak, I'm on the run, there's a death threat after my life. This poor man, speaking of himself, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. James Boyce, quoting on verse 6, says this, uh, this poor man, or the, this psalm is for poor men and poor women too. It is a psalm for all who are alone and destitute. For you, if you have nothing at all and are not even sure that you will be, live long, it is for people who find themselves at an absolute low point in their lives, which is where David was. Or find yourselves between the rock, which was King Saul, and the hard place, which was King Achash. It is for you when everything seems to be against you. Now, I want you to note something here. Um, Notice he mentions there, he saved him out of all of his troubles. His circumstances did not immediately change. Armies did not fall over. His circumstances did not change. Nothing really changed for David except for the fact that God drew near. He's still hiding in the cave. He's still fearing for his life. But the promise of God hearing our prayer does not mean that the circumstances will be changed per se, but that we can face them with confidence because he's with us. How are you faring faring in the spiritual battle? How are you fearing? Are you hiding in caves? Are you running? Are you hiding behind the ephod? Are, are, Are you running from things in this life? Are you relying on the Lord to be with you. Today, if you find yourself hiding and scared in various situations that come your way, do not think somehow, I must be in disobedience to God. I must be doing something wrong. No, it's normal to fall into these times of fear and fright and terror. It is normal. It's not something as though some strange thing is happening to you. Doesn't Peter talk about that in 1 Peter 4? Do not be surprised by the trials as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is normal for those who follow the Lord. David, David, as it were, was running from the tip of Saul's spear, 
Perhaps he felt like he was a human target on his back. I mean, remember Saul, as soon as he found out that where's David, he hurls the spear and and almost misses Jonathan. and, And anger wants to kill David. This poor man, he was poor indeed, without his friends, in great danger. But it says that the Lord heard him. Isn't that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Well, in verse 7, we have a glorious promise. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. You've got this, suddenly, in the midst of this context, this the angel of the Lord, and, and, and the encampment, which speaks of a military, a, a military force, as it were, the Lord Jesus rules the myriads <coughs> excuse me, of the armies of angels, and they surround the elect. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Of course, the Lord Jesus himself is the general, as it were. He is the angel of the Lord, but the idea that there is a military, there's a force of angels displaced First, and we know not exactly how many or anything like that, and our eyes are blind often to it. But you see the angels oftentimes in Scripture come on the scene. Uh, Acts 12, Peter's in a prison cell. An angel appears, light shone, the chains come off, you know, and he goes to the, uh, to the house where they're praying. Psalm 91, verse 11, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. Spurgeon, one of his devotionals, is based on this verse. He says this, We cannot see angels, but it is enough that they see us. There is one great angel of the covenant, whom not having seen we love. His eye is always upon us, both day and night. He has a host of holy ones under him. Note, the Lord of angels does not come and and go and pay us transient visits, but he and his armies encamp around us. We have a fixed protection, a permanent watch, sentinelled by messengers of God. We shall not be surprised by sudden assaults or be swallowed up by overwhelming forces. Deliverance is promised in this verse, deliverance by the great captain of our salvation. Isn't that good news? Turn to 2 Kings with me, 2 Kings chapter 6. <clears throat> Don't have time to give the full context here, but I think you'll you'll remember uh, this section where um, Elisha and his servant are there, and the armies are coming the, of Aram and and coming against them. And we'll just read verses sixteen to eighteen. Actually, uh, verse fifteen. And now when the intendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, and behold, an army of horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when they had come down, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike these people with blindness, I pray. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. 
But isn't that glorious? You know, it's, it's, you're looking at the circumstances. You're looking at what's there. The servant's like, what are you going to do? Come on, man of God. Oh, open his eyes. Wow. The angels, the, the forces were far greater than the enemy. Application. There's no promise that we will not have problems and trials in this life. I've been beating that drum. Fear, trouble, difficulty is common in this life. But the Lord brings us through it. He does say that he will deliver us either in or through those difficulties. So that's the challenge. We're, we're called to bless the Lord at all times, to magnify the Lord together. And now let's talk about the commitment to rejoice and praise God. Verses 8 to 14. Reading verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, and those who fear him, there is no want. This idea of taste and see that the Lord is good. David had experienced the goodness of God, and he wanted others to taste, to see, and to know something of that goodness. In fact, there's actually a third place where this is at least loosely maybe quoted in in 1 Peter 2, where he says, long for the pure milk of the word by which you may grow in your salvation. And then verse 3, a little phrase, if you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. I think it's, a, it's, it's not a direct quote, but it's, he probably has this in mind. And brethren, there is a veritable banquet prepared for us to feed and to feast at the table of the Lord with the richest food and the choicest wine and the sweetest fellowship is on the menu. A compassionate God is the host and He tends to each one of us seated at that table. And isn't that ultimately our eschatological hope that, you know, that marriage supper of the Lamb? Isaiah 25 alludes to this. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on his mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces and marrow and refined aged wine. Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. What a glorious text. The greatness of God demands a response. Taste and see. See if you agree with me. The Lord is good. Richard Eileen, one of the Puritans, says this, Our senses help our understandings. We cannot, by the most rational discourse, perceive the sweetness of honey. In other words, you know, I can sit, if you've never tasted honey, I could sit there and try to explain it, but you taste it and then you perceive it, he says. His fruit was sweet to my taste. Dwell in the light of the Lord and let thy soul always be ravished in his love. Get out the marrow and the fatness that thy portion yields to thee. Then he goes on, verse 9, the fear, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. That should sound somewhat familiar. Um, something like Proverbs chapters 1 to 9, which is the theme really from chapter 1 all the way to verse 9 about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 9 and verse 10. Verse 11, come you children, listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. There's a repetition here of the fear of the Lord. Why is the fear of the Lord so important, David? Why why is it so important that our children be trained in the fear of the Lord? 
Children are most hopeful to teach. They're, they're so impressionable. And I mean, catechizing young children is a joy and a delight because it's like they're memorizing it faster than I am, you know, or whatever. And, and you see they're so moldable and impressionable and it's a joy to see them take in especially spiritual things. But oh, how many parents are lazy and neglecting and not training their children as they ought and as they're called to. Neglecting the vital role of which you've been set apart for as a parent. And we will give an account as parents unto God. But there's such choice fruit and joy uh, as we instruct and ground our children in what the fear of the Lord is. Proverbs 10 verse 1, a wise son makes his father glad but a foolish son is a grief to any mother. The fear of the Lord. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you. Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Are you a peacemaker? Ken Sandy has a wonderful book. It should be standard reading for any Christian on what it means to be a peacemaker. It's vitally important, especially if you are married or you hope to be married someday or you hope to raise children, you need to know how to be a peacemaker, right? And that's not turning a blind eye and ignoring sin, but it's how to deal with these things, to keep short accounts with one another. If you're one that is given to bitterness, you need to memorize passages like this. Seek peace and pursue it. Keep short accounts before God and before our fellow men. Ken Sandy says this, there are three dimensions to the peace of God offered to us in Christ. First, peace with God. Secondly, peace with one another. Thirdly, peace within ourselves. Because if you don't have peace with God and you're at conflict with those horizontally, you're not going to have inner peace, right? So, three dimensions to this peace. Well, we've seen the challenge to rejoice and praise God, the the commitment, we must be committed to it. We must be committed to the training of our children. We must encourage others to taste and see. But now the comfort of rejoicing and praising God, verses 15 to 22. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The eyes and the ear of the Lord are, are they're there. He's near to us. And, and it's not, what does this mean, the righteous? Oh, I've li- I've measured up this week. I've lived this. I've made it to this bar. You know, uh, you know. Uh, I've earned my salvation. No, it's not that at all. It's those who are the children of God who have received the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is our only stand, uh, our only standing before Him. In this last section here, you'll see the contrast as so many of the Psalms do between the righteous and the wicked, and then so there's a contrast that we'll see. But in verse 17, he says, The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. I thought it was interesting that Pastor Sudarshan and I, we've been emailing, as we always do, but uh, I explained to him about the recent events at the hospital and all of that, and he quoted Psalm 34, verse 17, The righteous cry, the Lord hears and delivers them out of them all. I had to write him back right away. I'm preaching Psalm 34 this week. He goes, I am too. <laughs> so I've been studying it. <laughs> so I just I love that when the Lord does that. Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. 
We spent a whole sermon on that one verse last year. It's on the internet. But notice verse 16. The face of the Lord is against evildoers. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, the face of the Lord is a very solemn thing, right? The face of the Lord, you're standing before Almighty God and His impeccable purity and holiness and, and, and all of that. And our sin is exposed. But the face of the Lord is against evildoers. What is an evildoer? It's those that willingly practice what they know God forbids. It's willingly doing what God forbids. What does that look like? Well, lusting for another man's wife. Um, lying, cheating, pride, thinking uh, you're so great. Um, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's something like living a double life. Maybe it's looking at images that you know is inappropriate for a man who professes faith in Christ. And maybe you think, but I'm just, it's just me and my phone and there's nobody home or I'm in my car in a parking lot and I'm pulling up images here that I know I should not be looking at. Throw the stupid phone out the door. Run over it. Break it. Whatever you have to do. Cut off right hands. Don't be enslaved to sin. The face of the Lord is against you if you are willingly sinning in these ways. And then this really Hebrew idiom, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That's a profound thing. What that means is, is that you will be cut off. People will forget about you. It's the idea of, of away from the presence of the Lord forever. Removed from the state of blessing. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. In that situation, when you're tempted to look at something and you're tempted to throw it out, you need to put that down, whatever you have to do, and cry out to the Lord. His ears are open to your cry. The Lord hears, as it said in Psalm 18, that our cries go into His ear. And He delivers us. God has provided means for fighting sin. Use those means. Being under the means of grace, accountability, these things are important. The righteous cry and the Lord hears in, in 1 Samuel 20. Jonathan and David are there. He sends David away with the arrows. Saul is angry. He's running for his life. And where does he go? He goes to Philistine country in Gath. That's where, uh, that's where Goliath was actually from. And there he is. He's hiding. He's terrified. He's fearing. And, and so what does he do in this particular situation as, as King Achash comes, an enemy king, is he begins to act like a madman. He begins to drool and, and his spit's coming down his beard and, and he picks up chalk and rocks and begins writing on doors and acting like a madman like that, kids. Isn't that funny? Isn't that, wouldn't that be some, a sight to see? And so you say, well, at least he thought of something, and that was maybe God's means of escape. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that as this psalm is penned, and as I have studied it, David realizes that was not the thing for a king to, to do. That was not the, the, the thing for, a, he would be soon installed as king, but he's, he knew that he was going to be king. Um, that's not the thing for a king to do. Spurgeon says this, frequently we pray that God 
would not forsake us in the hour of trial and temptation. But we too much forget that we have need to use this prayer at all times. There is no moment in our life, however holy, in which we can do without his constant upholding. Whether in light or in darkness, in communion or in temptation, we alike need this prayer, forsake me not, O Lord. Hold thou me up and I shall be safe. What is that? It's living with a constant dependence upon God. And very quickly, verses 18 to 20, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. Actually, verse 19, first, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Paul tells us in Acts, the psalmist in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. So these afflictions are good. They mold our character. They mature us. They prepare us for glory. But then verse 18, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and he saves those who are what? Crushed. Those who are crushed. I think of the idea of crushed and it's kind of like rocks being just you know, crushed into powder or sand. And that's the intensity of our trials sometimes, isn't it? When friends flee, when family don't want to be near you, when you're all alone. It seems like the heavens are, are brass, as it were, as you would pray, and it, is God even hearing? And it's a, are they bouncing right back down? The brokenhearted think that God is far away. But the promise here is that, no, He's near. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. As we have our dear sister mourning the loss of her mother. Um, that's hard. It's hard to lose someone you love. Death is a cruel visitor, always. The loss of a job, an intense conflict, a conflict within yourself, a fighting, remaining sin. But in reality, the Word tells us that He is near us when we're brokenhearted. Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. Brothers and sisters, God finds joy in being near us in our trial. He finds delight in being near us in our times of affliction. In fact, He, he, he desires and delights so much to be near us that He came to the sin-cursed earth took on human flesh, was born of a virgin. He, he, he walked among us for 33 some years in the incarnation, the very thing we celebrate with Christmas, that, that God became man and dwelt among us. We heard that last Lord's Day, didn't we? That, that, that's how near He wants to be to our pain and our suffering. He came among us. Jesus comes and enters, as it were, into our misery, into our poverty, into our bankruptness. And he comes and he brings all the wealth of salvation. Not only does he have compassion for us, but he deals with our sin problem as he did on the cross. As the Father poured out his anger, his hatred against sin, because it goes completely against the moral purity of God. He poured it all out on His Son so that those who trust in Him can experience this nearness. He suffered agony and hell, as it were, on the cross for us so that He might be near. You know, the, the old surgeons 
uh, used to, when they would do an operation, they would stay very close to the patient for, you know, 10, 6, 10, 12 hours to make sure that the patient was, was going to be stable. That doesn't happen anymore. I think they're just wheeling from one room to the next. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, it's the idea that, that he is the great physician that is near us and never leaves us or forsakes us. And verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Uh, there's several applications of this. Of course, John takes it as a direct fulfillment, you know, the messianic fulfillment here. And it was very common as sundown, ironically, to honor the Jews' uh, Sabbath, but, or the sundown uh, was coming around, and they did not need to break his legs. Not a bone was broken. And then, of course, he wants to be so near us that he conquered death, rose from the tomb, and has ascended to the right hand of God. Where there he sits and he intercedes for us. That he's near, that he understands, and he, he has sympathy for the very things that we're going through. We have a wonderful, great high priest who has ascended to the heavens. The point for us and for David is that God goes to great care to make sure nothing happens to us that's outside of his perfect plan, and that he is near us. Verse 21 and 22, you have the fate of the wicked. The evil, evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of them who take refuge in him will be condemned. One final quote from Spurgeon, this is a great comfort to the tried child of God, a comfort which I dare accept. For up to this hour I have suffered no real damage in all my afflictions. I have neither lost faith, nor hope, nor love, nay, so far from losing the bones of character, and have gained strength of energy. I have more knowledge, more experience, more patience, more stability than I had before the trials came. Not even my joy has been destroyed. Many a bruise have I had by sickness, bereavement, depression, slander, and opposition, but the bruises all heal. And there has been no compound fracture of bone, not even a simple one. The reason is not far to seek. If we trust the Lord, he keeps all of our bones, and he keeps us. We may be sure that none of them will be broken. Well, a couple points of application Praise God that we have access to Him in prayer. Amen? That we know where to go and that He hears us. We can cry out to prayer and He hears and He delivers. His, his eyes are open. His ears are open to our cry. And we need this balanced view in the Christian life if we're going to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil to have this comfort that He is with us. Thomas Watson says this, Though nothing can add to God's essential glory, yet praise exalts Him in the eyes of others. Let us be those that have loosened tongues to give him praise and to forsake and hate grumbling. Another band says, The fear of the Lord is indeed the foundation of life, the key to joy in life and long and happy days. But it is not a guarantee that life will always be as easy. It may mend the broken spirit, but it does not prevent the heart from being broken. And it may restore the spiritually crushed, but it does not crush the forces that may create oppression. Know for certain that our God is near. It's a common experience 
when we go through these difficulties, we're brokenhearted, when we're, when we're feeling crushed. It's a common experience in the Christian life. Friends and family may forsake you, but God will not leave you. We sang last week, though troubles assail us and dangers affright, though friends should all fail us and foes unite, yet one thing secures us, whatever betide, the promise assures us the Lord will provide. Though we may be forsaken by all, we are in the family of God. We have a Father in heaven who tenderly loves you and will care for you and has promised to care for you and promised to bring you home. Christ died the just for the unjust that he might what bring us to God. Verse Peter 3 and verse 18. But if you're outside of Christ, you have cause for great fear, a horrifying fear, a fear of an everlasting torment and hell away from the presence of the Lord if you will not forsake your sins and embrace Christ as a substitute. Own your sin, forsake it. The wages of sin is death. And we're talking about eternal death. Sin produces anguish and grief. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but if he confesses and forsakes it, God is faithful to forgive. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we sit here today not as those who have rewards on our chest and stripes on our sleeves for all of the battles that we have won and the achievements that we have done, but we sit as poor men and poor women in the comfort of King David and the comfort of the psalmist, those that have been experiencing difficulties and trials and fear Lord, we confess we are they, but we thank you for the promise that you are near in those situations. Oh, Lord, draw near to the one who is feeling lonely today, the one that's forsaken, the one that's perhaps smitten by conviction of sin, the the one that perhaps is meditating on verse 16, the face of the Lord is against evildoers. Do your work, O God. Convict, restore, and save all to the glory of your blessed name. Help us to be those who give you the praise and adoration that is due your most worthy name. Thank you for your character. Thank you for your perfect law. Thank you that you fulfilled the law in all righteousness, that Christ has done that for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.